0: Hello, I'm Kieran Hanrahan, and a very happy St. Stephen's Day to you. Hope you and yours had a lovely day yesterday, full of all the seasonal joys of this very special time of the year. I'm coming to you from the Oliver St. Gogarty Pub in Temple Bar in Dublin, and although it's very early, it's already hopping here. St. Stephen's Day is a massive day out in Ireland. Probably the second biggest after St. Patrick's Day. Christmas Day is now the only day of the year when all the pubs close in Ireland, so there's a lot of pent up energy waiting to be released today. Amid all the joys of Christmas, this is also a very sad time for those who have lost people close to them, and feelings are extra raw. We were saddened last week to learn of the passing of Artie McLean, who played his last Dublin gig with us in January at Tradfest. Our heartfelt condolences go out to his wife, Nullig, and his family. He was a genial genius, no question about that. A man who made the guitar possible in Irish traditional music with his pioneering approach and his innate understanding of Irish traditional music. May he rest in peace, Artie Midlin. We lost another giant on October the 13th, Ed Ward, the man who founded the Milwaukee Irish Fest. He dedicated so much of himself to celebrating and sharing Irish music and culture. He founded the huge Milwaukee Irish Fest in 1981, the world's largest Irish music festival. We'd like to extend our deepest condolences to his wife, Kathy, his sons, Patrick, Sean and Connor, his daughters, Caitlin and Kelly, and indeed all his family. We know that this first Christmas without Ed has been difficult and our hearts go out to you all. Ed's entire family and the massive organisation he built up around Milwaukee Irish Fests are part of our extended TradFest family, and we mourn your loss as our own. The Milwaukee Irish Fest is the tip of the iceberg for what Ed grew into a year-round celebration and promotion of our culture. In 1992, Ed founded the John J. Ward Irish Music Archives, and in 1994, the Milwaukee Irish Fest Foundation There are very few traditional musicians gigging in Ireland today who have not benefited directly or indirectly from Ed's help. The fact that he is not a household name in Ireland is a testament to the humility with which Ed went about his life. As you'll hear in the interview we are about to share with you, Ed lived his life as a passionate, considered and sharing proponent of Irish culture who put himself second at all times. It was my privilege to spend time with Ed at the Ward Irish Music Archives in October of 2018 and I'm honoured that we can share this with you now. I started the conversation by asking Ed when, where and to whom was he
1: born? I was born in Highland Park, Illinois, to John Ward and Mary Jane Cagney Ward in 1945. And um, my uh, father, uh, my grandfather emigrated from Meath in 1900. My mother's family is from, I think the Cagneys are from from Limerick, but then there's uh, the Pattersons, and then we have, really, we have family connections up in uh, the north, and in in, uh, I don't know if it's County Down. Uh, I think it's County Down. My wife's a genealogist in the family. But um, my dad uh, and his sister, Eileen, and her husband, Jack, who was from Cork, and um, I think he studied under O'Keeffe when he was a younger man before he immigrated. He, they had a real musical family. Their daughters played and sang. So when we had family gatherings with my father's side of the family, we would have these little hoolies when we were doing, and my dad grew up that way too. As, as a boy, he either had to get up and read poetry or sing a song or do a little dance when he was a, my grandfather, had a, uh, played on an Irish radio show in um, Chicago as did my uncle who married my dad's sister and she was Eileen Fitzgerald Eileen Ward Fitzgerald and they were pretty well known um, and so there was music in the family um, and uh, I, I was exposed to it at, at an early age and uh, didn't really um, blossom or take take much interest in it till uh, much later in life, but uh, that's basically the, you know, the family history. the The other side of the family, um, and my mother's side, had been in Chicago. My grandpa Giggy, my great-grandpa Giggy, was an architect in Chicago, and he he, he was responsible for. He's a very colorful guy with a lot of color, colorful background. Sailor, carpenter, worked his way up to to be a builder and a developer, and he built 800 buildings in downtown Chicago. And there's an articles on them in Chicago Architectural Magazine some way, way long ago. So it was fun stuff to read. Mm-hmm. You know, I never knew them, but
0: uh, There was one question I asked you there, and I'm not sure if you gave me the answer, but when were you born?
1: I was born in 1945 in July, in uh, July 14,
0: 1945. And your siblings, how many in family?
1: I had an older brother, Jack, or another John, and my, young, my sister, Colleen, two years behind me. And then we had my younger brother, Chuck. Um, was 11 years younger. He was the caboose in the family. So, but then we moved to Wisconsin when, when I was in sixth grade. My father was with Allstate Insurance, and he moved up to Kenosha, Wisconsin. So, uh, but we still had most of our family was centered, in kind of a circled, the circles, the Chicago metropolitan area there.
0: As, as they would say at home, you didn't move too far away, like
1: <laughs> we, we didn't. <laughs> We didn't. In fact, we're having a big reunion for the Ward family in uh, Naperville in three weeks.
0: So that must be exciting then for you. Are you expecting
1: money for that? No, no. I I think we're just expecting... But we're going to... My my cousin, who's a very good fiddle player, um, and... uh, He's got everything organized. He's got a time when we talk about genealogy. It's <laughs> a time when we share photos. A time when we share family history. But we're really all looking forward to it because it's hard to get everybody together.
0: Yeah, the, he sounds like a sensible man. Actually, to have have it. Assumed. He's an engineer. Okay, so yeah, he has an order so, on things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that would explain that. So, what about yourself? Then, like going to school. I mean, you went to. Did you were you interested? Were you aware of your Irish heritage as a child?
1: Um only to the extent that when the family got together we would you know either listen to music being played uh, at my uh, aunt's house but my 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 grandfather had produced a series of five Irish collections of Irish music collections starting, I think, in 1949 up through 1953. And I remember when we were kids that my brother Jack and I used to go down to West Washington Street in, in Oak Park, Illinois, and we used to help him lick stamps to put on these little these envelopes when he was mailing his books out to people. You know, And these are the books that you have on the table here. You see his comic songs book. But I'll, I'll get you copies of the others. What was his inspiration
0: behind those? Why did he do it?
1: Well he loved Irish music and he played um, I think he played the mandolin and uh I th- I think uh, the the whistle I'm not sure I had to foggy on that in terms of what my my grandfather played and but but I know that they were very active in the Irish Hour in Chicago and uh, that had an hourly show and Jack and Eileen particularly I was doing a I was doing an IBAM about five years ago with Bill Margison on the panel, and Liz was on the panel too. And we were t- I was talking about my family history, and I was talking about my Chicago roots. And I said, Yeah, my aunt, L- L- Kyla- Eileen Fitzgerald, and Liz says, That's your aunt and uncle? <laughs> yeah. So I said, Yeah. She said, She's known him since she was a little girl. So
0: the, it stretches Smaller. far far. It certainly is. It stretches far and wide. What about other people? were there many other of you know your own schoolmates let's say that were that were let's Irish by extraction or that understood maybe what you did when you got together as Not a, a soul
1: <laughs> not a soul, but because we, in, in Kenosha when we moved up there it was very heavily uh, italian American, but my dad had a group of friends, and they you know that celebrated the Irish St Patrick's Day. And my dad would pull out a guitar and sing a song, and he was very proud of his Irish heritage. Um, but that's about it. When I was a kid, you know, I was into the you know the folk music of the 60s, 50s, and 60s, and um, which later made me appreciate Tommy and Liam and the boys uh, much much better. And it blossomed. It was a little late bloomer, but I, I have um, you know I, I, I graduated after high school in Kenosha. I went over to Marquette. And I was, this is kind of cute because I was playing guitar for folk mass, with, for Father McAvoy uh, at the dental school, and I got asked by a couple of dental students if I would play in their group. And I said, "All right, you got five guys and a couple of di- dental hygienists playing this group. Well, what's it called?" Well, it's called the Dentistry Minstrels. <laughs> so I played in that. We we, we didn't play for very long together, but. Uh, but I, I did a little music, but I was more interested in folk music I, I chose because of that music when my later years in high school and college.
0: But in college, then, that's really where your, your interest was piqued, was it not, for Irish folk music
1: in itself? Due, I, I due think most, mostly American folk music. I wasn't into, really into the Irish stuff at that point. I graduated from college in 67, and then I came back to law school here in... Um, after college I was in the Peace Corps for two years in Thailand. Then I got drafted and I was in Nam for a year. And then I came back, worked for the Commanding General Walter Reed to fill out my two-year service. And then I stayed at Georgetown to work on my master's and working in the Congress. And then I decided to come back to law school. So but what really interested me and made me click with my heritage was spending two years overseas living in another country and learning and appreciating their culture. Because when I was in Thailand, I was learning their songs and I was singing them.
0: That's very interesting. So that's really what sort of maybe persuade you to, to look back into your own heritage? I think
1: it just, yeah, I think it was serendipitous. It was, it was gonna happen. It just didn't know when you're gonna, what was the mm-hmm. catalyst? Yes. I'm not sure what the catalyst was because when I came back here, when I lived in Washington, DC, after having you know been in Thailand for two years and Nam for a year, they had a lot of Irish music. You know, Celtic Thunder, Celtic Thunder there was at the time. You had Ireland's Four Provinces. You had the Dublin that had opened up while I was there. And and I started going to, you had Matt Cain's at the time, which was really a popular Irish bar. I started going and listening to bands. And that's when I really, I think it really started. That was... Uh, and I had no idea that I would ever be playing an Irish band or have anything to do with an Irish festival. But I love the music, you know.
0: So what persuaded you then to get involved with an Irish band? Where did that turn come?
1: Well, when I left Washington, I came back here to law school, and that's, you know, in 70, uh, 73, August of 73. And after, the, after the, I'd say after the first semester, I wanted to get involved in the local Irish scene, so I joined the Shamrock Club and uh, got immersed and met, met a lot of the people that were running Irish events, uh, doing Irish cultural programs and um, and I attended the meetings. I get to know the bar owners, the Irish bar owners at the time and and so the, the um, it was uh, so that would have been late so seventy three and most of seventy four. But in 1975, in my second year of law school, is when John Maher, who was a friend of mine, played the fiddle, had a little group called Gail Wynn. They did trad music, and I danced. I, I took Irish dancing, too, in those years. But there was only one dance school here at the time. Now we got seven schools and about 4,000 kids dancing. Um, so John was the guy that played the trad music for the dancers, he had a couple friends. and. So I said, John, why don't you and Bernie and I sit down and put a program on for the Shamrock Club? Let's just sing a couple songs, like the Wow Colonial Boy, the Orange and the Green, or some other songs, and let's entertain at one of the Shamrock Club meetings, which we did. And so we were not very good, but uh, people enjoyed it. Right. And so you know what happens when you get that kind of encouragement. You know, you start believing you've actually got, got something there. You know,
0: some starts. talent.
1: Yeah. And so, um, and so we decided uh, that uh, uh, we would play another gig. This was, I think, uh, um, which we did. And then we found a guy uh, whose uh, sister I knew at Marquette. I, there was a lady I knew at Marquette at the time whose brother played, in a, played banjo in a polka band, John Teston. So we asked him to play. So it was the four of us. And uh, we played for the after parade party for Al's run. Al McGuire asked us to play for him. We played at that Marquette Union. So we started playing in local gigs. Yeah. And you know, at that time there was nothing going on with Irish music yeah. at all, especially ballads.
0: I wanted to ask you that actually: was it were you the only people doing it really at that time? At that time, we
1: were the only were the only people that were doing the ballads, singing, or even knew who the hell Irish Rovers and Tommy Macon and Liam Clancy were, but. The other thing is, in order to learn more about the music, I called uh, I called Dan Collins or when, and I at Shenakey and I called uh, Wendy at Green Linnet and I said, "Hey, um, how do we get records from you?" And so Chuck and I became distributors for Green Linnet and Shenakey, and we had you know we we had no place to sell them, so what we used to do is we we'd, we'd uh, schedule a sale at one of the Irish bars. Like maybe once or twice a year so we had all this inventory that we'd bring and buy and we had a couple sales and one of the reasons we did that but and ha- by having done that we got to know jay Donnan and we got to know uh mihal and kevin and we got to know you know planksty and we got to know you know all those all the bands that were you know, popular at the time that we'd never heard of before. And not only did we get to know them, but the other people that came in that never heard these bands before, they got to know them. So, so when I was in the Shamrock Club, we, we, we organized two concerts of just local musicians, because there were some people that were playing music at the time. This would have been maybe a couple of years later. And one was called McNamara's Band, or Land, McNamara's Land, where we put together dancers, singers, uh, and held it at a local high school. And it was the first performance of all of the local musicians that we knew who had anything to do with Irish music. We did it twice. And then we booked Day Dunnin. And I'll tell you where music was at the time, and this is in one of my blogs on the Celtic Milwaukee site. When we brought Day Dunnin in, um, the, the popular Irish musicians at the time were the ballad singers, it was the Dubliners, It was in the United States. It was uh, Clancy Brothers and and Tommy Makem, and the Irish Rovers. So when we brought Dave Dunne in, you know, this music was just infectious. It was one of the greatest things I've ever heard. So we put him at a high school on the west side of Milwaukee. It was on a Sunday afternoon. We had about 350 people there, and I was in the lobby during halftime. And just as the the first half of the show ended. Two old gray haired ladies are walking out, and one said to the other, Well, this certainly isn't Irish music. That's a true story. So that's where we were at the time, you know? That's what people's perception was. But the other thing was, and this really impacts um, what happened when we started booking the festival people did know John Gary, they knew Dennis Day, they knew Joe Feeney, they knew Carmel Quinn. And this is my parents' generation who knew these people. And that paid off for us when we booked the festival because Carmel, John Geary, and Joe Feeney were all at the first festival.
0: Can I ask you though, do you think then that you may have contributed to people's misconception about Irish music, seeing as you were pushing the ballads in your own way?
1: Well, they didn't really know much about the ballads because we were the first group that really um, brought it to a larger audience here, and then we did our first album. and. Um, so we had a nice little following here. In fact, it, in the early years of the festival, we used to close the festival every Sunday night, and Blarney was we used huge, huge crowds. But then, you know, over the years, we we're bringing in bands that have national, international reputations, and so I think maybe, but no, I think we, we, <clears throat> I think we brought a lot of the. We did what the Clancy Brothers did for Irish music in the United States and Ireland. We kind of did it for Milwaukee. You know, and maybe some of the outlying areas, because we used to travel around Wisconsin a little bit.
0: And speaking of Milwaukee at that time, and okay, the ballads were becoming popular. Were there any Irish traditional musicians in the area at the time?
1: Yes, John Maher, Pat Williams, Terry Leahy, Jeff Keeling. There's a band called Gale Wind, and they put together a little group and they played trad music for the dancers and so they started a little bit smaller maybe one or two people but then as more people heard about the music or some of the dancers who danced started playing music which is a thing that also has happened here you know with a lot of our uh, kids our d- different generations so yes there was and then John Maher and I started a Kultus branch here in uh, i can't remember when that was it would have been in the late very late 70s probably 79 and eighty, and uh, we uh, we went down to our first meeting in uh, uh, the south side of Chicago, and uh, they were all arguing with one another, and <laughs> and we're going, holy smokes, you know, what I, mean, <laughs> I mean, there's all this political stuff going on, and so it kind of it kind of you know we didn't put a lot of enthusiasm back into the effort mm-hmm. to grow the Kiltis chapter here. But there were, but it started picking up steam a little bit, as the dancers, uh, dance schools grew. They needed musicians. That that was kind of a trade-off, a symb- kind of a symbiotic relationship. There, dancers loved the music, started playing the music, and um, so there, there, there were definitely musicians at the time there. I think we were all pretty
0: raw. Well, I mean, everything develops over time, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, so to those heady and early days that you brought Day Donan in and people saying, well, that's not Irish music, to the Milwaukee Irish Festival, what what prompted you? Why did you think that there was a need or even that it would be a success here?
1: Well, we not only brought Kevin and Mihal in too... And they—this is before we booked them at the festival—and they played a local pub here. It was just a little pub. There was a little tiny stage, and neither of them talked at the time. You know, they both played with their heads down, and they didn't say anything to the audience. But the audience didn't care. They were so good that you know you are just in awe, just listening to them. But then, when all this kind of came together, okay, the band—my band—started playing. We started in '75. We we did three three LPs. We were traveling around Wisconsin. We had the the distributorship going, so we were learning a lot about other bands and other trad bands and who's touring and who was big in Ireland. And, um, And so that all kind of coalesced. And the festival scene here... We had existed with Summerfest, which was in our 54th year now or something. But three years before Irish Fest started, it would have been 1978, while this was all going on, the, the, the Italians started a festival on the Summerfest site. They had an old church festival called Our Lady of Pompeii, and they basically took it and moved it to the festival site to try to enlarge it. It was very popular. I volunteered there. I had friends who were organizers there, and we had other friends in the Irish community who were organizers there. And in the meantime, I became president of the local Shamrock Club in 1978. So, you know, what three years after I got in the club, I, I, and I got selected as I walked in that night. And the outgoing president said, Hey, how'd you like to be president? <laughs> and that's how it happened. So all this stuff was going on. So FESTA started in 78. I was a volunteer, but I also decided... I loved the festival sites, I was a festival junkie and I would work as a volunteer at Summerfest and I was the guy that when you walk in and you're supposed to direct traffic. People come in and they say, I need so-and-so, I've got a problem. And I say, well, you've got to go see so-and-so and there were a couple of us that did that. And so I got to know all the people that ran Summerfest, all the operational people. And I loved that back-behind-the-scenes stuff, I just loved it, you know. And so Fest did the same thing, I was a volunteer. And so in 1980, it was a Saturday night, and we were standing at what is roughly the, the main entrance to the grounds right now. There were, there were five or six of us standing there, and I don't even know who it was. We were talking about how nice an event Festa Italiana was, and then somebody said, well, the Irish ought to do that. And I said, yeah, you're right, we, the Irish really need to do this. And then they said, well, why don't, why don't you do it? And I said, okay, I will. That's basically how it, what happened. And, and I know that that happened because when I went home that night, I was living with my, one of my law school roommates, and he and his fiance were there when I got back, and I went home and I said, John, we're going to start an Irish fest. And he said, uh, Ed, uh, do you know how many Irish there are in Milwaukee? And I said, well, no, I don't, but I think we can pull it off. And so that was it. And then I got a planning committee together. But So here's the other thing that helped. I was very active in political ca- campaigns. So I was involved in organizational activities. I got to meet a lot of people that dealt with volunteers and knew how to handle them. Mm-hmm. That was really important. So when we started reaching out and plugging people in, we were plugging in people that had ex- volunteer experience, you know, and, and that was really uh, valuable.
0: I just wanted to ask you a question on that, and it has to do with the question of the number of Irish in Milwaukee. If you didn't know, The numbers that say. Did you think that there was a large population here? No, no. I knew there wasn't. So did you expect it was how did you expect that there was going to be a market for this festival?
1: Well, I figured if the Italians could do it, we could do it and they didn't have a big ethnic (laughs) population. It was mostly Germans. Germans actually started the same year we did because the grounds were formed by Mayor Henry Meyer when he went to he went to Germany for Oktoberfest in Munich. Came back and said, see that land on the lakefront there? We need a festival site. And he was instrumental in getting the breweries, Schlitz, Pabst, and uh, Miller at the time, to help build the stages that eventually became what the grounds are today.
0: So he was far that He was
1: the father of Summerfest, no question. It was his idea, and he mobilized the resources to get those grounds built and developed and over time.
0: So speaking of mobilizing then, how did you mobilize your first team for well, I, Irish Well, what I did Fest. is I
1: put, to, for first of all, I put together, we put together a board of five people. And then Bernie McCartan was a law school roommate of mine. We decided we were going to incorporate because we didn't want to, we were going to go to the Shamrock Club and ask them for their moral support. And then there was a Neville Dunn American Legion post with most of the Irish-American uh, vets so we went, and and everybody knew us at the time because of the band, because we were involved in the club, and we knew everybody that was running the, the Shamrock Club at the time. So what Bernie and I decided is we will go in and, and we'll ask them for 250 bucks and, and said, we want you not to underwrite this or undertake the liability for it. We will take that uh, responsibility ourselves, or maybe Bernie thought that I would, probably, but Bernie was there. So... And, I, and they said, um, because we're going to incorporate it, and we would like to have you in on the ground floor. And they voted, we'll give you 250 bucks. I said, we'll use it to open a P.O. box. And then we went to the American Legion fund, the um, uh, American Legion Neville Dunn Fund uh, 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 organization, and said we'd like to have, once we put our board together, we'd like to have a rep on the board. And not everybody, um, not everybody was supportive, okay? Um, The first organizational meeting we had was at Mr. Guinness. It's an Irish bar on Greenfield Avenue at the time that we used for a bunch of our meetings in the early years. And so I had called together a a group of people. I said, anybody's invited to this meeting, we're going to outline for you the plans of uh, an Irish festival and, and, you know, what it would be, when it would be, how it would be run. And so as I was going, (laughs) As I was going through these details, there were about twenty people there. A guy stands up and says, "Well, who are you to do this?" You know, I said, "Well, I guess I'm the guy that you know shoulder the the credit or the you know or the guilt, or the if it's not a success." He became a big supporter after the first year when it was successful, and other people just said, "You can't do it." Even a member of my finance committee at the first year was very skeptical and said, "But he was there." Yeah, you know, so. Anyway, so we, we had a board, we did a, we put a little event together. Um, and the first event we put together was in February of 1981 at the Italian Community Center, which was a kickoff for Irish Fest, and it went very well. It was all local bands. Then we did another event at the stadium, because uh, Bill Hanrahan was on our board and he was a stadium manager. We got a flatbed, put it out in the stadium parking lot, and advertised an Irish Fest hoolie or whatever we called it, I don't know at the stadium, and Blarney played, and by that time my brother had a band, an Irish band, Foggy um, You Do, they called it. And so we had a couple hundred people that came to that, and we were signing up volunteers at these. One of the reasons we had these things was to organize and create volunteers. But in the meantime, we were plugging people in. We plugged somebody in to do culture, we plugged somebody in to be a volunteer coordinator who couldn't have, I, we couldn't have found a better person. And then, so here i am i have this bus and we want everybody to get on the bus so my job was to get out there and say here's where we're going this is the bus do you want to get on and make this ride with us or not and so that's what i had to do i had to do it with people who were volunteers i had to do it with the breweries i had to do it with uh, uh, people that were instrumental in the city and the county uh, i worked when i came back here i was the economic development coordinator from Waukee county and I was very close to this county executive, but I knew all the politicians in the city because I'd been involved in, and and you know, so, and we had the, the uh, you know, the mayor was German, but the comptroller, the city attorney was uh, Irish-American, the city treasurer was Irish-American, the head of the Department of City Development was Irish-American, and I knew all these people.
0: So there's a lot of goodwill.
1: Yeah, so you, I, you had some leverage. I didn't have much leverage myself at the time, but I had these other people who knew me and um, and who, who would I could sit down with and say, this is what we're going to do. But even my original finance committee was a little skeptical of the whole thing.
0: No, I just want to ask you, just before we move on with that, you said you had your first meeting, that
1: initial meeting, and you outlaid your plan. What was the plan? Well, <laughs> well, at the time, I had just done, done a one-page thing where I had... Here's the thing What my Italian life, uh, Festa Italiana was so important. From the date that we went in in November to the Shamrock Club to get um, to incorporate, Bernie and I and John were meeting with lots of people. And we decided to approach Festa Italiana and, and said, can we mentor, Will you will you mentor our people? And when we pick somebody who's a coordinator of an area, can they meet and spend time with your people so they know what they're doing? And they were very receptive and uh, extremely generous. So our tre- our fan- our treasurer was meeting with their treasurer, our cultural guy met with theirs, you know, and um, they were exceptionally helpful. And on the other hand, we were lining up the people that had political clout here so that we could leverage donations. <clears throat> but we had to do the selling. We had to do a selling job. Everybody liked the idea, but they wanted to—they wanted to see the meat on the bone. Mm-hmm. In the median, in in the at the same time, I had approached two of the most respected bar owners, Derry Haggerty and Danny O'Donohue, and successful bar owners, because I, was, I because who knew me well. And I went to Derry and Danny. I said, Derry and Danny, I want to bring the Irish Rovers in, and um, I'm not going to be able to do that unless we have money, and we have no money, because even. You know, even going into early 2000 in 1981, you know, we probably had three thousand dollars in June because most of what was coming in, we were spending on advertising, marketing, things like that. So I said, "Will you give me a thousand bucks each?" Yeah, sure, give a thousand bucks each. So then, I, when they were here, I met, I went down, and met with Will and Wilson and George, and I thought we. Uh, and they said very interesting, but you got to call Les Weinstein. So I called him and I said, well, I talked to the boys when they were in Milwaukee. They'd been coming here on a regular basis. They were here a lot. Clancy Brothers and Tommy Maker were not here that often. But the Rovers were here a lot, so people knew them. And so he says, well, you can't do that because Will Miller's on vacation in August and he's not going to travel. Now, I don't know if he was on vacation in August and whether he didn't want to travel or whether he just thought it was some rinky-dink, you know, Festival that never operated before, that didn't even know if they could pay them, you know, because they were going to want a letter of credit and everything, which we would have gotten anyway. Where well, they were out, then we then we thought about the Dubliners. I don't know if I talked to John Sheehan at the time or not. I don't remember. We were going to try to hire Pat O'Brien, the actor, to come in, and that didn't work out. But we did get they done, and she was they were working with an agency in North Carolina called the Allison Lee Agency at the time and she also handled the Red Clay Ramblers. So while we're pitching, and she handled all and Kevin too at the time. And then for some reason, I don't know how I got on the mic. Either I read about Greenfields or somebody told me about them and I knew that they had played at the 1976 Bicentennial for the Smithsonian Folklife Festival and that they were touring. That was a much bigger deal, but then they consolidated the group just to eight or nine people. But somehow I got a hold of Mick.
0: That's Mick Maloney.
1: Yeah. Mick Maloney. And and uh, and we decided to write a grant to the National Endowment. And Mick told me, well Mick was on the board of the National Life Institute at the time. And so we decided to write a $7,000 or $8,000 grant for Greenfields of America. And Mary Cannon, who became the, our, the assistant director of the festival and eventually the person that was making the money while I was spending it. Um, she uh, worked at the Department of City Development and she wrote a grant at NEA and we got the grant. And so that's how McMaloney and Greenfields of America came. And um, and then uh, we had the uh, Tannehill Weavers. But the other thing is that when I outlined the plans of the festival, I told them that this is going to be, I'm a big fan of Walt Disney and you have to know that before I explain this to you because I believe in entertainment and I believe in education. And he that was his mantra. And he just said, I want to educate people and I want to entertain them and I want to educate them, but I don't want to know what we're doing. And so I said, we're going we're to entertain people, but we're going to have a cultural component. We're going to educate people. Um, if you're a band or anybody that dances or plays music in Milwaukee, you have a role at our festival forever. <laughs> That'll to problems later. When we had four, seven dance schools and eight, you know, twenty bands, and so, and I laid this out that we were gonna and we were gonna embrace the Irish music and culture and Irish American music and culture, and uh, that's where we had Carmel Quinn for, and we had John Gary and Joe Feeney. Now a lot of people knew them, and they were and, and incidentally they were the people who knew these these artists that had the money too. They were the disposable income crowd, you know. And so we had a real mix, a real nice mix, and we had some people from the region, from around the region, we had our local groups, and, um, and it was great. I mean, the first year, uh, this is a two story too. We had a beautiful weather, and um, two incidents at the first festival that I recall. First of all, we had a waiters race in front of the Hyatt Regency Hotel downtown, and the MC was Al McGuire. The famous basketball coach. So we started that out, and American Express sponsored it for us. Then we went down to the grounds. And we opened early that day. We were, we were we were opening at noon in the early years, and so at the main gate, you walked in, and the first thing you saw was a Schlitz stage with these huge four Irish flags flying, and I had a guy that came up to me. He walked in the gate, and he was crying, and he walked up to me and, and and thanked me, and of course I. Just, I so, said, well, thanks very much, and I, you know, but, but that just made me feel so good, and this before we even heard a note of music, uh, it was a gorgeous weekend, sun was out the entire weekend, and when we closed that night, we were running until midnight, and this is, a, a Milwaukee cop told me this, he said, the rain started that night at 12.01, right as the gates closed.
0: The, your business was done.
1: And you started thinking, well, maybe this is a little divine <laughs> providential <laughs> lightning bolt. I, I get off on these
0: tangents, because mm. these stories are... Well, that, that's why I think it's so interesting, and um, because people see Mil- the Milwaukee Irish Fest for what it is now. Yeah. I'm just curious as to what the, the foundation, what was the, the bedrock upon which it was kind of laid, and you mentioned about the Walt Disney influence and the Walt Disney factor, let's say, having education, having all walks of Irish life, and right. that's one thing I saw myself when we came in the early 80s, we were looking, you had... Freckled children and right. Tell me what, what, what else you had there at that time.
1: Well, we had we had a children's area. We had a special harp stage. We had uh, we had actually the first year we had this beautiful Irish cultural exhibit called the Jewels of Ireland, and it was all replicas of the Irish crown jewels. And Tom Cannon, who was our local Irish historian, he made uh, it was a gorgeous gorgeous um, display of Irish crown jewels. And we had to have security there, they were all in glass cases. we had dancing, we had dance instruction, we had children's activities, we had roaming, roaming companies, uh, jugglers um, and so and uh, so it was really important that we, that we we had a cultural area that eventually you split off and became a drama tent and a cultural tent. that was three years later. so
0: and did you personally program the event, or did the entire team do that
1: the uh, the musical events I programmed almost all of the um, music, all the bands for a number of years, and Chuck came in and helped me with the local bands. I was still booking most of the main bands for quite a few years because I was director for eleven years, but then I just decided, hey I, I, you know we need more input we need we need input people and other ideas, people who knew. Liked other kinds of music, and but we but the formula was one of the things I did present to people when we went out talking to people originally. So it wasn't just going to be all bands from Ireland. And here's the other thing that influenced me because at the time Mike Denny was running the the, the um, Washington D.C. festival, he had a traditional Irish music thing going, and uh, it was very popular. And they had some bad weather, but one of the other things they did that people told me was that he started focusing more on bands that had reputations and ignored the local bands and that didn't go over well with the local musicians who had been, you know, spending a lot of their lives playing Irish music and contributing to the local cultural and musical scene.
0: Would you regard that very first festival so, would you regard that as having been a success, let's say numbers-wise, and did you get out of it uh, or did you have to foot the bill?
1: Oh, no, no! I got out of it. We made after all expenses were paid. We had about ten twelve thousand dollars left, That's phenomenal. yeah, and it was a fantastic weekend and i don 't know what we would have i mean we were even if we had lost a little money at that time. it was such a good weekend. It was so exciting. people were so proud, and the entertainment was so good. but these are you know here are people that are used to seeing the rovers or seeing. Irish song, they she used to see Joe Feeney, and then they see Mick Maloney and Donnie Golden and Eileen Golden and Liz Carroll and Timmy Britton and Michael Flatley dancing on stage playing traditional music, and they, and they hear the Tannehill Weavers from Scotland, and so we've always been a music, uh, uh, for, that's the other thing from, from the start, we've always been a little pan-Celtic, mm-hmm. because just because of what was available at the time in the way of what was touring, and we've always been um, selecting music, well, uh, we've treated Ireland as a country, you know, so we've never differentiated. Northern Ireland has always been a part of our programming from the very start. So you know? you've always
0: had the broadest musical pick for sure. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So all this came together, it was the right mix. People went to hear Joe Feeney and they loved him, but then they stayed and they heard, Greenfields of America, or they hold Kevin and Mihal, or they heard Jay Dunan, you know. I mean, and the local bands. uh, And everybody has a a different preference for music. So we had enough variety. I think we had, what, one, two, three, four, five, in the early years, that first year, we had five stages. Then we had a a showcase um, stage, which was basically a little um, tutorial stage where, you know, you had Mick get up and Kevin Burke got up and me all got up, and, and we uh, what happened there is we eventually started the summer school because everybody would bring their instruments down there and want a place to store them, and so they'd, they'd hear these guys playing on stage, and they became little mini-concerts. Yes. People can't sit there in an audience with 50 people, but people would bring their instruments down, and what would you do with these things? I said, well, I don't know, but, you know. So we eventually did away with the, the workshops, on the grounds, and that became the summer school.
0: You did start a summer school actually. When did you start 87. that? 87. 87, yeah. I remember uh, Milwaukee Irish Fest, I think it was probably
1: 82. Was that 83 yeah, well, around that been, time? I'm not sure. I think 80, no. You guys wouldn't have been 82, you would have been 83 or 84. Because mm. 82 is when we had Liam and Tommy came in. Now, Tommy and Liam um, at the time, they didn't know who the hell we were. So here's my call. I call Tommy's home, and I get married. And I said, oh, I'm Edward. I'm from Milwaukee. We're in our second year. We run a festival here. So I told, I made the same pitch to her that I made it to the other people. I said, we're not a music. We are a music, predominantly a music festival, but we're a cultural event. And so I was telling her all the other things. And so when she went to Tommy and explained what we were doing, she recommended that they play oh, here. And Ron Rory tells that yeah. story. Yeah. He tells us that we probably... You know, he has a little bit different perspective on it. But that's true. That's what happened with Tommy and Liam.
0: But tell us about Tommy and Liam then and their performances. They were quite something special. Oh, Did, my they, God. I presume the audience here got
1: that. Uh, I mean, I had never seen the Clancy Brothers and Tommy live, but Tommy and Liam were magic. I mean, really, truly magic. And I've seen them, I don't know how many times I've seen them, but I and, I, and, and Tommy and I were very close. Uh, ultimately, we became good friends. I was good friends with Liam, but Liam, you know, he had his devils. And, and, uh, but they were brilliant. They were just brilliant together. And, and um, they were so good. And uh, they could tell stories. They could do, recite poems. They could write songs. They could, their memory of uh, songs was just unbelievable and songs they had in their heads. And plus, they just had a real nice performance persona it was just perfect. They were, you know, it was so folksy and personal and people loved it and they laughed and they sang and this happened. It was just magic.
0: They played with you a few times, I take it?
1: Oh my God, yeah. Tommy and Liam. Well, Tommy Maycomb probably up until maybe last year was the one entertainer that probably played here more years than anybody. Now, after they split up. Tommy would come with Daddario, or he'd come with Rory, or he'd come with Eugene Byrne, or somebody else that was playing with him. And then we had Liam would come periodically, um, and then he, we did, a, we did a, over the years we did two reunions. When Tommy celebrated his 50th anniversary of, in, in show business, um, Rory was, Eugene was with him, Rory was not. We flew the whole family and we flew Katie in. we flew, well the entire family, unbeknownst to him. And Katie and and uh, and his granddaughter came in, and so on Saturday night with this huge crowd out there, and Eugene stopped the show about three quarters of the way through, and I walked out on stage and and um, I said, "We have a little surprise for you, Tommy," and the whole family walked out on stage and he was crying. He was, I mean, he was. I had my hand around his shoulder and he was really emotionally. uh, And we did a. Uh, we did a, a reunion for Liam Finnbar, Efa, Bobby, and Robbie. We did a so we did a Clancy reunion too one year, and so that was really neat stuff. I mean, and I, I have special memories of that. Um, but but that that the reunion we did for Tommy on his 50th that will remain in my heart and mind forever. You know.
0: You've been listening to myself, Kieran Hanrahan, in conversation with the wonderful and inspiring Edward, who we sadly lost this October the 13th. He's sorely missed wherever green is worn and Irish culture is celebrated. Tomorrow, we'll be sharing the second part of this conversation with you. In the meantime, keep your loved ones close and spare a thought for those going through hard times this Christmas as we remember those we've lost. Sloan from the Oliver St. John I'm Kieran Hanrahan. Thanks a million for listening.